Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for uh, these men and um, thank you for the fellowship that we can have together when we um, come here each time. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just strengthen our relationships with one another, that we would see one another not as adversaries or competitors, but that we would see each other as brothers in Christ who um, are like beggars just trying to help another beggar find the bread and that, Lord, we would be an encouragement to one another to build each other up in our spiritual disciplines, that, that Lord, we would be men who would want to spur one another on to love and good deeds, and um, that, God, the ultimate result of this would be that you would be glorified because we are men who um, love you more deeply and fear you and enjoy you with greater delight and obey you with greater fervency. And Lord, if we are th- that, those kinds of men, Lord, then our, our marriages and our relationships and our households will, will be strengthened as well. And God, that's what we want, so that our households are strong and pleasing to you. And um, so Lord, teach us this morning, um, make our hearts soft to your word so that we might uh, align our thinking with your thinking in scripture. And so, God, we commit ourselves to you and give thanks to you for this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Scott, come on up. All right. Why don't you grab your notebook and turn it backwards, and we'll take a look at what's there for us. And if you have your Bibles or your devices, would you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians 3. Thanks again for coming this morning. It would be more comfortable to be under covers right now. <laughs> it would be more comfortable to be horizontal right now with our eyes shut. Um, but there is a, a great blessing that comes to this church when we actually just sit in the same room, and even when we're just listening, uh, because we're informing our minds with the truth from God's Word, and that encourages one another, and that um, equips us when we head home. Let's walk through the disciplines, and then uh, we'll take a close look at Colossians chapter 3 and see how it it relates to the disciplines. uh, One of the things we want to remember always is we want to keep heart shepherding in front of us. And we share this every week, not because we think that we don't know this or we think that we've forgotten this, but we just need to hear this. We need to be reminded every week of how important it is to shepherd our hearts. Once again, heart shepherding is something that occurs on a regular, consistent basis when a person has their Bible open and their eyes closed, meeting with the Lord. Heart shepherding also happens throughout the day as you you recall what it was that you read, what it was you confessed before the Lord, what it was you thanked the Lord for, and you apply that to the circumstances God gives you in your day. So we want to make sure that we are people who are regularly meeting with the Lord, regularly confessing, regularly praising the Lord and thanking Him uh, for what He has done and its ongoing effects in our lives. That's our first discipline. That's the discipline that is the most important discipline in our lives. We never want to leapfrog over that and and jump into any other discipline after that. The second discipline is, is our home. This is the place where we take the fruit of meeting with the Lord. When we close our eyes and confess our sin with the Lord and we we read God's word and we're thinking about what God's word means to us 
again, that's what prepares us to, to head right into our home and to love those that we live with, whether it's a roommate or whether it's a brother or a sister or a parent or a son or a wife. Um, we are ready to do that best when we have met with the Lord first. We think about conversations we have. We think about decisions we make. We think about everything that we do, whether it's a small thing like, hey, when are we going to put up the Christmas tree? Or a large thing like, you know, we got this unexpected bill that's $2,000. Our refrigerator just died. Um, Actually having spent time with the Lord in prayer, having spent time reading truth from God's word, gaining wisdom from him, helps us navigate through that situation in a way that's pleasing to him. It helps us lead those around us. That is when our leadership is good. And, and we as, as husbands know that. If you're younger here today, uh, Lord willing, one day you are going to be a leader in your home. And you will be if you are just living with roommates. You have the opportunity to lead others as they lead you. And If the Lord ever brings you a wife, you want to be a man who is very well equipped and very well versed at leading your own heart well so you can lead others. So you want to be one who's been shepherding your heart so you're ready to take the fruit of that into your home. And when you've done that, you are ready for fruitful ministry in this church or any church, any local church in which a person is a part of. Um, The ideal servant that that works and functions in this church is one who truly does meet with the Lord consistently. And as he approaches this church and he comes into this church through the front door, he's he's coming into this church as one who is at peace with those in his, his family or those in his home. He can stand up and he can teach the fours or the fives or the sixes. I saw somebody teaching the sevens last week and the eights last week, and that is a person who shepherds his heart well. I saw him functioning, and he had a room full of eight-year-old kids, and they were functioning well, and that's because this guy shepherds his own heart and he shepherds his own home very well. So we want to do that. We want to be people who are ready for fruitful ministry, and fruitful ministry here starts with caring for our own hearts and caring for our own homes. I want to talk about deacon qualifications for just a minute. We've talked about in the past how a deacon is a man who serves at a layer of service in this church that's between the elders and the body. That's an essential role in the church. It's laid out for us. You see the start of it in Acts chapter 6. There's needs within the church that, that the leadership of the church could meet, but they're probably better served doing other things in the church. We need deacons in this church, but we need deacons who are a certain kind of man. And we've talked in the past how they are men who are of dignity, and they're men who are um, not double-tongued, and they're men who, we talked about last week, are um, not given to much wine. Today we want to just look briefly at what it means to be a man who's not fond of sordid gain, and why that's so important in deacon leadership in this church, or any church. Many times a deacon is going to be serving in a role that does involve the handling of money. And... One of the things that you understand when you begin to function within a church is that everything within the church belongs to the Lord, just like everything else belongs to the Lord in our homes and in our own lives. And a man who is serving as a deacon in this church, um, if he has been shepherding his heart, if he's been shepherding his home, he is ready to handle money. He is ready to handle resources and assets in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. He's ready to handle them in a way that will serve the purpose of the gospel when he has money in his hand that is to be used for benevolence or to be used for anything else, his mindset in that is not first and foremost, how does this benefit me or how can I get a piece of this? His mindset first and foremost is, this is serving the gospel mission of the church. That's why I'm here. That's why everybody else is here. 
Um, it serves the gospel mission when a man uses the resources of the church for the purposes of the church. If he is a man who in his own private life has lustful thoughts about money, has jealous or greedy thoughts about money, that is going to translate into his deacon service in this church in one way or another. And that will end up in the long run just harming the gospel mission of this church or any other church. So a deacon needs to be a man who is a man who is not fond of sordid gain, not fond of taking things for himself that, that belong to others. And lastly, our fifth discipline is, is the hermeneutic. Every man needs to be a man who is growing steadily, slowly, steadily in his understanding of how to use God's word in his own life. And we want to make sure that, that we provide opportunities for guys to do that at this church. And this is one of the, process, the first step in the process of that at this church. Um, there's nothing more dangerous than a man who has uh, a body of theological knowledge and understanding who doesn't know how to use that from a position of being one who shepherds his own heart. Um, God's word in his hand becomes a weapon. God's word in his hand becomes an offense. It becomes dangerous to others. It's not a blessing when he uses it. We want to be the kind of men who are striving after a deeper and deeper understanding of God through his word, but we want to come to it humbly as ones who understand that God's word is, is first and foremost applied to us and then ready for others. But we want to be men who, who consistently aim to grow and grow and grow in our knowledge of God's word so that we can handle the situations that God brings to us in a more honoring way to the Lord. So let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at, at verses 15, 16, and 17. And these verses have a lot to do with hard shepherding. They have a lot to do with discipline one. I'm reading from the NAS, and it says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is some of the richest words in scripture that you can read, and this has a lot to do with heart shepherding. I want you to see that there are instructions all over this passage. There's one at the very beginning of verse 15 that says, let the peace of Christ rule your heart. There's an instruction in verse 16 that says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Guys, that's talking about discipline one. That's talking about shepherding your heart. <coughs> the word of Christ richly dwells within us. The peace of Christ rules in our hearts when we meet with God, when we sit with him and we read his word, we read his revelation of himself to us, when we read his description of us to ourselves, when we inform ourselves about what we have available to us as people who have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. We are capable to do what's written in verse 16. Look at what it says. It says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And then this, With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Guys, when we spend time alone with the Lord, and then we enter into a family situation, we have fresh in our mind what we need to bring to bear on the situation that's in front of us. And it's not always going to be the case that the exact verse that we read that morning is going to apply specifically. But what more is happening is the verses you read in the morning, the time you spend in prayer, makes you the kind of man that is ready 
to teach one another with wisdom. Your words are going to be wise. Your words are going to be songs. They're going to be hymns. They're going to be spiritual in, in their nature. You're going to have a bearing and a, and a view of your, yourself and all of your circumstances that's informed and that's led by Scripture. And then there's a word that shows up in verses 15, 16, and 17 that is so important. When we read the word, we're informed of what God has done for us. And so you see the word thankful, thankfulness, and thanksgiving. That is the overarching theme of a believer is that they are so thankful of what they've been spared from. And we only see that when we read Scripture, when we open our eyes to the words of Scripture on a regular basis. So we want to be men who are aiming for these disciplines, um, keep them in front of us, keep pressing forward, praise God for all of the, the evidences of his grace that he's, he's building in you as you become more and more disciplined in this. But uh, let's keep pressing on towards those disciplines. So let's uh, go ahead and turn the corner there and make sure you've got your worksheets, get your Bible ready to go, something to write with. We're going to move uh, through our Bible this morning from left to right. We're going to take a look at um, what God has to say in his word about household relationships and what goes on there. Um, and as we do that, as we get ready to look at God's word, let's pray again. Let's ask him for help as we look at his word. So will you pray with me? Father, again, we ask for help this morning. And now that as we sit before your word, we want to not just sit before it, but we want to sit under it, that it might speak authoritatively over us. We just thank you for revealing yourself and for revealing to us the way that you think about everything. And um, Lord, what we ask is, is that you would show us what you think about the household relationship, um, the good, the bad that is there, and that Lord, we would think your thoughts is what we want. So that as we step into our households, Lord, we, we would be already pointed in your direction, thinking your thoughts. So draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you now. And we ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. All I'm going to do is give you nine different categories of things to think about in regards to the household. So we're just going to jump right in here with category number one. I just want you to see first God's concern for the household. And the way that I have this study put together is we're just going to move left to right kind of in each one it where we can uh, so we're going to start way back in exodus 20 so turn there let's, let's look at the 10 commandments if you'll remember what's going on at this point in exodus 20 is uh, moses has led israel out of egypt they've come into the wilderness they are at mount sinai and god is giving a um He's, he's pouring out regulations for Israel uh, in a manner that he has never given any people before that. Um, before he, he's, This is a, a dumping of regulations on the people that is unlike any other time before. And look what God has in, you know, you know the Ten Commandments here, I know you're familiar with them, but look at uh, chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother. So that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Uh, there's the parent-child relationship. Look at verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. There's the marriage relationship. And then look at verse 17 even. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Um, focus on your own house. Focus on your own household. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his car, or his lawnmower, or whatever, right? Um, Or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Focus on being content in your own household. Um, Deuteronomy 5 is just the repeat of that, the reiteration of the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy. So, what, what would we learn, first of all? Just that God has very specific expectations in mind about the household relationship arena, the, that, it, that it's foundational. Early on, he intended to put forth, uh, when he put forth this, this most formalized regulation for his people that the world had ever known, he revealed that household relationships mattered greatly to him. Uh, the parent-child relationship, the marriage relationship, um, it, it matters to God. And those are relationships to protect. Those are relationships to respect and to honor, um, to pay close attention to. Let's move to Deuteronomy chapter 4. We may not look at every single one of these, but we're going to try to look at as many as we can. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9. This is after Israel has been forced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness because they grumbled and they complained. And Moses in Deuteronomy has them on the plains of Moab. They're basically at the end of the 40-year period, and he's giving to them a, a, a heavy dose of instruction one more time. And this is what he says to them in chapter 4, verse 9. Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. What does that sound like with what we talk about here? Isn't that discipline one? Shepherd your heart, right? Shepherd yourself. Keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. But, now watch this. But make them known to your sons and your grandsons. What's that? That's discipline too. Look at verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. So, discipline one in verse nine, keep your soul diligently. Don't let these things depart from your heart. And then at the end of verse nine and in verse 10, discipline two, uh, teach your children, make them known to your children. Uh, God's intent early on with Israel was that, look, you, you better take care of your own heart and you better help your family. Okay. How about Deuteronomy chapter six? Same type of thing. We're going to actually, uh, later in January, we'll actually do a, a, one of our lessons from this passage here. Look at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So there's your heart, your inner man, your inner being. Everything that you are inwardly needs to be given over in love to the Lord And then look at verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So there's discipline one. Um, God connects love for him with his word. You you can't love God apart from his word. Without his word being informing that love and revealing to you who this one is that is love and what love looks like of him. 
And then look at verse 7. What's inseparable from discipline 1? You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You know what that is? That means every, every moment. You are just this machine of a man that you would be instructing your people all the time, God would say to the man in Israel. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you are an Israelite man. You leave in the morning, and as you go out your doorpost, there's the word of God. As you head out the gates and step into society, there's the word of God. You go out and you work all day. You're in the field all day or whatever. You come back to your house. You come to the gates. Oh, yeah, the word of God. You step across the threshold into your house. Oh, yeah, God's commands. That's his intent for Israel. How about Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Watch this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, Then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, watch this now. You shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? What is so wrong with that? They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you verse 5 but this you shall do to them you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire that's all of their idolatry destroy it don't leave an ounce a speck of it left so now israel was to not even let those kinds of mixed households begin you believe in yahweh they don't Don't even start a household where you would take a son or a daughter from that people and intermarry. Or don't give your daughter or your son to them to intermarry. And the reason for that is because the generation that intermarries those who have another God, they eventually have their hearts turned away from Yahweh. Those are not evangelistic opportunities. Um, It's just the opposite. They pull the heart away from Yahweh. And the burden was on the father and the mother in Israel to shepherd their children in such a way that their children would not abandon Yahweh and turn to the other gods. So we know that discipline one impacts discipline two, that if you love the Lord your God and his word is on your heart, you are to then take that into the home. And we know that, right? That discipline one impacts discipline two. What this verse, what this passage says is that it's just also true the other way around that the household will impact your heart. You get the wrong kind of household and it can lead your heart astray. Do you understand? That's what God is saying to Israel. So not only does discipline one impact the, the home, but here in Deuteronomy 7, the emphasis is on how discipline two or the household will impact the heart. So now let's go to Psalm 78 and, and see what generations later 
Israel learned and even sang about. Remember, the Psalms was their hymn book. And this was a part of their worship. And some of their worship was just rehearsing what God had already told them. Psalm 78, verse 1. Listen, O my people. This is a masculine of Asaph, it says. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard, which we have known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So here the psalmist is expressing uh, the obligation that he knows that he has, that the one generation has to tell the next generation about the Lord. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob, or to put it another way, he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the generation yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. See, that's what we just read, right, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. That's what God's plan was. Verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. And not forget the works of God, but but keep his commandments. And then this unfortunate history of Israel. And that they would not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, watch this, a generation that did not prepare its heart. And whose spirit was not faithful to God. Which discipline is that? Discipline one. They did not prepare their heart. That's another way of saying they didn't shepherd their heart. Um, so what were, what, what was the next generation supposed to learn from the prior generations of Israel? They were supposed to learn verse eight, that they should not be like their fathers who did not shepherd their hearts. So here's a father telling his household, don't be like them who didn't shepherd their heart. And so maybe here is like a dad telling his kids about his kids' great-grandparents. So kids, don't be like great-grandpa. Don't be like great-great-great-great-grandma. They didn't shepherd their hearts. They didn't prepare their hearts. And so the father stands between the kids and the prior generations, and it's to be the, the, the stopgap, the, the wall, the encouragement to pursue the Lord. There's an inseparable connection between the man's heart for Yahweh and his obligation with his own children. It's undeniable for the nation of Israel. Let's go to the end of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi. Yes. Point of your message right now is I'm completely responsible for the shepherding of my heart, or is this kind of a generational thing that we take on as? responsibility that we pass down. I don't even know if that's a good question. Um, my whole point is I, I want you just to see how concerned God is for household relationships. And the secondary implication, I, I would want you, at the, by the time we're done looking at even Ephesians 6 and 1 Timothy 3, that you would not be able to say, after looking at the, what these passages, you know, God, God's kind of indifferent about what goes on in the household. No man can say that if he's read his Bible. 
So that's the first thing, is that I'm making the case that there has to be a concern in our hearts for the household because God has a concern for the household. Every single one of these passages, and there's a million others if you want to look at them. That's the first thing. The implication from that, though, that's included in that, is that I have to, this is, we're reviewing discipline one. Diligently keep your soul, uh, prepare your heart, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and the word needs to be on your heart. And just wanting you to see again that that's God's unending desire. I mean, you get to the New Testament, that doesn't end. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? Uh, the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Um, that's the same teaching. But that then is, all we've been talking about in Bill so far this year is just that. But now what we must see is God puts no separation between that and what? Your household relationships. If, if we're going to be people, men who shepherd our hearts with the word of God so that we might know him and love him and worship him, the next breath that comes out of our mouths needs to be the one that says, and that will impact my household. I mean, that's what we've been telling you, but now we're making the case for it biblically. Do you understand? So that's the point. Are you responsible for your child to do that? Um, humanly speaking, in all of the ways that, yes, humanly speaking. Ultimately speaking, only God can do that, just like he was the only one who could do that in your heart, right? But God loves to use instruments like you and me, others who you know, lead us to Christ and things like that. But um, so, yeah, we're, you're, we are responsible as dads. Um, as you'll see here. Let's look at uh, Malachi 4. Scott, yes. Quick question for you. Yeah. For, from Psalm 78. Yes. It seems that Israel was faithful to like tell the next generation about all that the Lord had done. Um, yet, uh, I don't know really. Like it seems that the Lord not only wants them to like understand all that he has done, but like actually have them respond correctly as well. So there seems to be, um, yes, grandma, grandpa, great grandparents have like been faithful to tell the story, to tell like who Yahweh actually is, yet part wasn't in it. Um, so just simply me telling my kids, hey, this is who God is, here's a theology lesson. Um, yes, that's good, um, but not what the Lord desires. Yeah, in, in, in one sense, um, Israel was very faithful to make sure that the next generation knew the history of what God did. Now, whether or not that means that um, the whole nation understood that at a heart level that they needed to is a whole other issue. But what God certainly did is there was always a remnant of genuine believers within Israel that not only gave the history of what happened, but where history was connected to the heart of what God was doing. And I think that's what you see in um, the Psalms here is, is this is one believer's cry uh, in song for the rest of genuine believers in Israel to sing. And, he, and, and Israel's a, an interesting animal because you can become you were born into Israel. Circumcision puts you under the covenant. But that doesn't mean you were a believer. And so Israel had a very interesting time where they had to labor very hard to make sure that Israel was believing, was, was a believing Israel. And so that's why you have that kind of exhortation all the time, right? 
to make sure. Why are you calling these Jews always to believe? Aren't they the believers? The answer is, well, it's complicated, kind of. No, they're not. Yes, they are. They're the ones who... Anyway. Um, So let's look at Malachi, the Italian prophet here. Malachi 4. (laughs) Malachi 4, verse uh, 1. For behold, the day is coming. Talking about the, the day of the Lord. Burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stalls. So there's the day of the Lord for you. Utterly devastating for those who don't believe, a day of delight and joy for those who do believe. You will tread down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and the ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. You see that theme throughout from the beginning to the end? Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet... Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What does that say that God is concerned about? What provokes him to judgment on Israel? The heart of the father is, has no concern for his child and the child... Heart, the child's heart has no concern for death. He says, he, he will restore their hearts to one another so that I will not come and smite them. Okay, so his point is that it matters to God what goes on in the household in the nation of Israel. Um, and Elijah was that one who was to do that. Let's go to Ephesians 6. Every single one of these passages, I would love to stay and talk about about 17 other things that are on my mind with each one in regards to that. Did, did Elijah do that in his coming? Is there another coming of Elijah? Well, we'll talk about that another time. Uh, Ephesians 6, verse 1, very familiar passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. So there's your child, uh, parent-child relationship from the child's perspective. Fathers, verse 4, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so there's the parent-child relationship from the father's perspective. So really the fifth commandment um, from the old uh, Ten Commandments is brought under the authority of Jesus' regulations for the church. And children need to shepherd their hearts in such a way in the church that they would honor their parents. And dads need to parent, uh, shepherd their hearts in such a way that they would not exasperate their children and make it difficult for their children. So God, again, is demonstrating that even in the New Testament, the household relationship matters to him in Christ. How about 1 Timothy chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 4 and 5? We'll look at older qualifications that we 
even referenced a little bit last Sunday. Into the church, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Drop down to verse 4. He must be one who manages his own household well. What do you mean by that, Paul? I mean this, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So it's the argument from the lesser household to the greater household, from the nuclear house to the church, the household of God. Um, A man needs to be able to be effective in his own household as a manager, as a leader. Um, That's the testing ground. That's where then the church is able to say that man who does that well is qualified to be an elder in the church. So all the way from the Old Testament into the New Testament, even up until um, uh, to the elders of the church, it is undeniable. Um, God has a high expectation for family relationships, for household relationships. One would never be able to read through the Bible and say, you know, um, I can justify my neglect of my household relationships because God doesn't put a, any weight on it. You, nobody would ever be able to say such a foolish thing. God has a concern for the household. Let's talk about the second category. Let me give you one Old Testament man who grasped God's heart for the household. This takes a little bit of time to develop, but I, I want you to turn back to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Let me give you a little bit of the history. What what has happened by the time you get to Joshua 24? This is the last chapter of Joshua. What was Joshua's task? Moses was not permitted to come into the promised land. Um, Joshua would be the one to bring them in. He has brought them in, and one by one they have taken out the other nations. For the most part, there were still many who were left within uh, the land. They did not clear the land as they should have. And now they're at the end of that, and Joshua is calling them to uh, all together to talk to them probably one last time. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor. And what? Did you know that? Did you know that God picked an idolater to work through? Abraham. Do you know why he picked an idolater to work through? Because there was nothing else to pick anywhere. We all are idolaters. He just picked this one. If, if God was going to pick a human line through which to work, there, his only option was to pick idolaters on the, on the surface of the earth. And his point is, look, we have idolatry at the root of who we are as a people Israel. He picked Nahor, or he picked Abraham, and, and they were all idolaters beyond the river. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied the descendants and gave him Isaac. Now drop down to verse 14. He recounts the history of what happened. 
Now, therefore, where we are today, Israel, he might say, fear Yahweh and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What does that tell you? 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. They went into the land. They're in the land. And what does he say about them? He calls them to Shechem and he says, put away what? Your idolatry. What are they still? Even everything God did, they're still idolaters. Which idols are they still clinging to? What does it say? Put away the gods which your father served beyond the river. They never got rid of those. And the ones that you served in Egypt. What, what idols did they serve in Egypt? Well, the Egyptians' idols. Everywhere they went, they were idolaters. And they have just, Joshua, all he did is he led a bunch of idolaters into the promised land. Who follow Yahweh? They're Yahweh's people. Now, why Shechem? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn back to Genesis 33 for a moment. This is important. Genesis 33, verse 18. Remember the story of Jacob? Jacob went off and uh, worked for Laban. Um, he was double-crossed. He was deceived. Uh, it, was, it was God's way of um, helping to humble Jacob, who was a deceiver himself. And so he worked seven years for his wife, only to find out that he didn't get the wife that he worked seven years for, and he had to work another seven years for the next one. And so he was with Laban for a long time, and he's mistreated the whole time. He comes back. He um, has to face Esau in chapter 32. Um, and finally comes back into the land. He wrestles with God and in, um, meets Esau in chapter 33. When all of that is over and he's back, look at verse 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. Uh, that doesn't mean that this, necessarily the city's name was Shechem, but it was the city that belonged to Shechem, a guy, as you'll see here in a minute. When he came from Padan Aram and camped before the city, he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of silver. And he erected there an altar, and he called that altar El Elohe Israel, or God, the God of Israel. All right, so Jacob is back. He's back in the land, and he's like, he comes to Shechem, and he says, we're going to worship here. Okay, And then on chapter 34 is one of the darkest, ugliest chapters in the Old Testament where Dinah, one of the daughters, his daughter, um, Jacob's daughter from Leah, um, Shechem, this young man, really liked her and he, he raped her. And he wanted her as his wife. And then, so this is this horrible story then of what um, Jacob's sons do um, to get back at Shechem. You remember this story? Ah, we can't intermarry with you. We've been told we can't do that. But I'll tell you what. If you guys all get circumcised, then we will. <laughs> and they all go back and they say, hey, you know what? I know this is going to be painful. But we're going to get all their stuff if we intermarry with these people. I mean, you, you see what we're going to gain? 
And so they do, and then they are obviously in pain for days, and that's when Jacob's sons go in and kill all of the men. Right? Now, look at uh, chapter 35, verse 1. Jacob's going to move. He basically has to at this point. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, the house of God. That's where he had originally put a rock down and slept on that rock and before he left to go work for Laban. And he said, "If God, if you will be with me and I get all the way back here, I'll, I'll serve you. And so now God says, Go to Bethel and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, now watch this, this is the point. Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Wait a minute, what, what are they? They're, they're idolaters back then. We know that, right? This is what they've been. Verse three, and let us arise and go up to Bethel. I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And so they gave to Jacob all of the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So what does Shechem mean to the Jews, to the sons of Jacob? That's the place where we buried idolatry. Sort of. Supposed to be the place that is symbolic for us that when we turned away from idolatry, we bet we left it all there under the oak tree in Shechem and we moved on. And so then let's go back to um, Joshua chapter 24. Turn back there with me. So when Joshua says to them, hey, I want every tribal leader to meet me in Shechem. What, do they, what does that say to a Jew? Uh-oh. This is about idolatry. It's going to have something to do with idolatry. And now back to the famous verses in Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve Yahweh. Notice what Joshua is trying to do. He is trying to destroy syncretism where they follow Yahweh and they also worship all of the other idols. And he is saying, put away the one and serve Yahweh. You can't do both. Verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, then choose for yourselves today with whom, whom you will serve, whether the gods, which your father served, which were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, here it is, we will serve the Lord, right? So think about poor Israel, everywhere they've been. They came from idolatry beyond the river. They went to Egypt and they were there in Egypt for 400 years and they found idolatry there and it clung to them. They came out of all of that. They've come into the land. Idolatry now is before them and the Amorites have idolatry before them. And he knows this people and he says at Shechem, come here, put away your idols. My house, he's the Old Testament example. He's the man of all time in, in some senses for what a household should look like. My house is not going to have idols and God. I'm going to serve Yahweh. Now put away those idols and serve Yahweh. Look at chapter 24 some more. Look at verse 16. What do the people say? The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake Yahweh to serve other gods. 
Now, notice what you have to watch really carefully as, as you read this is what they, what they say is not, okay, we will stop idolatry and only worship Yahweh. What they say is, we won't stop worship. These idols won't make us stop worshiping him. Look at what um, Joshua says in verse 19. Uh, No, no, verse 18, watch this. They rehearse a little bit of history themselves. Yahweh drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. They're they're saying, look, we're going to keep worshiping Yahweh. Don't worry. But they're not saying anything about stopping the idolatry. Joshua said, you will not, verse 19, be able to serve Yahweh, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Why would he be jealous that they would have more than one God? And so he keeps trying to peel them off from their their idols. And they just keep saying, no, 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 we're not going to stop worshiping Yahweh. And he says, you're not going to make it. God is holy and he is jealous and he will not allow this. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. And they say, no, we're going to serve Yahweh. And he says again in verse 23, therefore, put away the foreign gods. What is he trying to do all the time? Stop this. Turn away from idolatry. And he, his household is an example of what they must be. So that takes a while to develop that. But it, he, he is a, an Old Testament example of a man who grasped God's heart for the household. Um, a man who had decided that his household would be faithful to God. Let's talk about category number three. Let's talk about some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the household. Go back to Exodus chapter four. We'll move a little quicker on these. Uh, Moses, did you know that, do you you remember, we were talking in our uh, discussion group a little bit about Moses. Um, Do you remember the time when God almost killed Moses? So he comes to Moses and he says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver my people. And Moses says, okay. No, Moses says, not me, somebody else. And he thought of as many different ways from Sunday to to complain and to try to resist. And then he finally goes. And in in, uh, Exodus 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, am I in the right verse? Yeah. Um, When the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So that's God's plan all along is the last plague, right? Verse 24, now it came about at the lodging place on the way that Yahweh met him and sought to put him to death. I mean, where does that come from? I mean, that's just like, a, a, that's like getting broadside. Like, what? This is the guy who's going to go deliver him, and God is on the way to kill him? Verse 25, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let Moses alone. At that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the, circ- uh, because of the circumcision. So, God made the point, this is my firstborn, and what do all of we, what do we do with all of our baby boys in Israel? We circumcise them. It's a sign of the covenant. 
Okay, it matters to me. God say it matters to me. This is my firstborn. Um, so, why would you, Moses, come and say to all of those who are supposed to be circumcised and who are supposed to be in the covenant, "Let's go"? When you don't even apply the covenant to your own son, and so God is like, "You're not fit." And He met him on the way to finish him off. Um, so. Moses put God's deliverance of his people potentially at risk by neglecting circumcising his own son. His, his family didn't have the sign of the covenant. So Moses on the way to inform Israel that God, you know, you're in covenant with this God. Remember, we've got the sign of that covenant. He's concerned to deliver you. He failed to take that covenant seriously within his own household. And so could that covenant-neglecting man speak for the covenant God to his covenant people? No. So there was a failure at that moment. How about 1 Samuel chapter 2? Eli is the priest in the tent, and little boy Samuel is there, and Eli is taking care of him. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh. And the custom of the priests with the people... When, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there, because that's where the tent was and that's where the sacrifices were. Also they did this. Before they burned the fat, because they were supposed to burn the fat in Leviticus, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting. He won't take a boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the one offering would say, Well, they must surely burn the fat first, and then he can take as much as he wants. Then one of his sons would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I'll take it by force. Can you imagine this? This is the, one of the priest's sons. You're trying to worship, and you're trying to do it by the way the word says, and they're saying, No, I'm going to take it now, or I'm going to knock you silly. Verse 17, thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. These are the sons of Eli. Okay? Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he had heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel. And it, and it gets worse, guys. And how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Why do you do such things, he says in verse 23? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Yahweh's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if man sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Verse 29. A man of God comes to Eli in verse 27, a prophet, and he says to him in verse 29, why do you, this is very important, why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling? You see, Eli wasn't doing it, but his sons were, but who was holding, who was being held accountable for it? Eli was. And, why do you honor your sons above me? Key verse. Why are you honoring your sons above me? You are letting them get away with this. Now, did, did Eli say something to his boys? Guys, this is terrible. You shouldn't be doing this. But, but he didn't make them stop. And so he honored 
his own sons above God by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel. So here's Eli as a failure. And it's a helpful clarification for us. With all of the emphasis on household relationships, here's what God is not looking for. God is not looking for household members to honor one another over him. As high as God sets up the household, God is still higher. Right? You cannot set your household up high and so high that you would honor your family over him. How about 1 Samuel chapter 7? Samuel himself. And what's interesting in these early chapters of Samuel, of 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel is always set in contrast to the sons of Eli. Um, they were this, but Eli was growing before the Lord. And then you get, and you hope that maybe perhaps Samuel will, will be a little different. But look at 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15. This is towards the end of his life. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gigal and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 8, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. Watch this, though. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain, and they took bribes, and they perverted justice. So here's a, here's a man who grew up, or a, a boy who grew up, and what did he see every day? He saw the sons of Eli um, being unfaithful, and he is always set in contrast to that. And he finally grows up and he has his own kids and he sets them in order and he didn't watch his own household. And look what the people do. Verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now we want a king. And the rest of the chapter goes on to talk about how that desire for a king was an ungodly desire, one that God was not pleased with. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine your mismanagement and poor shepherding of your family tied to a horrible choice that a bunch of other believers would make? Because that's the point, is that Israel asked for something ungodly, and it's in the context of Samuel not having taken good care of his home. And it exasperated God's people. Um, so does discipline one shepherding your own heart impact what you do with your household? Yes. And can what you do with your own household impact a, a whole lot of other believers? Oh my goodness. Yeah. For good and for bad. Um, so there's another example of a failure. We'll skip, um, second Samuel seven in 11. That's David. <coughs> Where God tells him, look, I'm, I'm going to make your house a unique household. I will build you a house. I know you want to build me a house. I know you want to build me a temple so that I don't have to live in a tent. That's great, but I'm actually going to build your house. But then what happens? David undid his own house with the whole Bathsheba thing, right? And he said, I will make your house split. And that's exactly what happened. Look at, let's go to First Kings chapter 11. Talk about um, Solomon. Here's another example of a failure to grasp God's heart for the household. First Kings 11, you know this. Now the King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. 
from the nations concerning which Yahweh has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh. Six times in verses 1 to 4 and in verse 9 is the word heart. Um, So building a household contrary to God's will, how did that impact his own heart? His heart was turned away, right? Um, So not taking care of your relationship with your wife in the Old Testament uh, brought great pain on the nation. Um, As I read through this again this morning, I was struck by verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. What, what, is, what does God think about it when my heart drifts from him? It's, it's more than disappointing to him. Our hearts are to be his entirely. And so you, as we go through this number three here, you just simply cannot conclude from the Old Testament scriptures that the household is not important. Household relationships are are very important. It, it, in fact, it appears in the Old Testament to be almost the uh, decisive place, s- spiritually speaking, men. And yet, how quickly we think of other relationships outside our homes. Can Can you remember? I mean, guys, can you remember when you're in maybe grade school, junior high, most likely high school for sure? Do you remember where you thought all the stupid people lived? Where Where did all the stupid people live? In your own house, and it was your mom and your dad. I mean, <laughs> and all you could think of at that young age was what? I would listen to almost anything anybody else said, and not my parents. I'm just trying to get out. I just want to be out from them. I want to go. Now, not every person is that way. There are, there are many of you who, even in your youth, were... Um, godly young men and, and you and you loved your parents and, and many of you have sons and daughters I know that way who grew up in your home and, and they did not think this way maybe they've been tempted at times but but what is this within young men especially where it's just like we, we just want to be out um, that says something doesn't it I mean doesn't that tell you about what your if, if God feels this way about the household what does your flesh think about your the household mm. not what God thinks mm. right um, let's talk about number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the household. Deuteronomy chapter six. Let's go back there quickly. Deuteronomy six again. You know what I love about what we're trying to do um, by God's grace at, at uh, Grace Bible Church is... Josh Kelso and all of the guys and girls in student ministries who are leading there. Are there any of you here who are in student ministries? No. In student ministries. Oh yeah, you are, Isaac. You yeah. know this. You're actually in student ministries. Um, but here's what I love. Do you know what we're telling the junior high boys and girls? Uh, 
We, we tell them the gospel all the time because we don't assume that any kid's a believer. Right after that, we say, you need to shepherd your heart with the word of God so that you meet with the God of the word. And you need to step into your household relationships and you need to be under your mom and your dad. And you need to honor them. And then you think about ministry to other people. And so we're trying at that age when everybody in their household, they might be think, tempted to think that all the dumb people are the ones I live with. Um, we're trying to say, no, it's not that way. Focus on your household. Think about it. If at age 15, a, a young believer um, is fighting at age 15 to love his household or her household, and they, they, they work on that for the next 10 years, when they are 25, when, when a young man is 25, and for 10 years of his life, he's been working on that, where's he going to be at age 25? Where's he going to be when he's 30? You might have some elder qualified young men in a church who didn't have to wait 30 years to figure this out. Um, so, I mean, it's important for us to put this before the young men and women in our church. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. Watch this. It shall come about when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant. And, and when you eat and you're satisfied... It's at that point, verse 12, watch yourself, shepherd your heart, that you do not forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt of the house of slavery. So they've been slaves, and then they've been campers for 40 years in the desert. And then they come in, and they wipe out the, the nations, and they take over houses and vineyards that they didn't have to work for, and they sit down and they kick their feet up and they're enjoying all that. And that is a point of prosperity that they did not work for. And that's when God says, you better watch yourself because you'll turn away from me. That's how easy it is to be to forget God. And, it, and God doesn't get forgotten. He says out in the workplace, although I'm sure that that's also the case. But he, it, it, he specifically highlights the household. Watch yourself, that you don't forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you've eaten and you're satisfied and you've built good houses and you've lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget Yahweh your God who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is easy to forget God when you have everything in your house as a little palace and you're prospering there so that's a category to not forget number five let's go to the new testament the impact of one person's faith on the entire household that's something for you to grab a hold of there are some great illustrations in the in the new testament go to Acts 16 we're going to look at the philippian jailer and i'll, I'll just briefly remind you of the other two so Acts 16 verse 22 but you remember cornelius in acts chapter 10 um he is told by an angel to go get Peter in Joppa. Peter is told by uh, 
the spirit in a dream, you need to go to this Gentile's house in Caesarea. And uh, Peter doesn't get it because he thinks he'll be unclean if he does that. And eventually he goes. And when he gets there, he finds out that Cornelius is this Gentile believer, this Old Testament kind of proselyte believer. And he wants to hear everything that Peter says. And he's assembled all of his relatives and his friends in his house. And Peter starts to preach the gospel and they receive the spirit of God. Um, So there's one man, one man that an entire household was impacted by. Because one man was faithful. Because one man wanted to know who, whatever the message was that Peter had to say, which revealed Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Acts 16, you have the example of Lydia, who I think is another example of an Old Testament believer, um, a, a Gentile who was a proselyte. And she is at the river. Paul, on his missionary journey with Silas, comes and, and the Lord opens her heart to hear about Jesus. And so, uh, again, an entire household was, was changed and grew and was uh, faithful to the Lord Jesus. So here's some great examples. You get one heart. And oftentimes a whole household will change. Do any of you come from that kind of a situation where God saved one and the whole household changed? Anybody like that? Yeah. Um, it happens. Look at, let's look at a great example. Acts 16, verse 22. You remember they get thrown in jail. Paul and Silas do. And they have the whole earthquake. Um, I don't want to read that verse 22. Let's, let's drop down to verse 29. Remember that... Uh, the, the, the soldier or the jailer is going to kill himself because he thinks all of his uh, prisoners are gone. Verse 29, he called for lights and he rushed in and he was trembling with fear and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Has anybody ever asked you that? I mean, have any of you had an evangelism opportunity where somebody is so like ripe, so well prepared to tell me what I have to do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. You and your household will be saved if you believe. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So then Paul goes into his household. And when was the last time that jailer probably took a prisoner and brought him into his own household <laughs> and said, tell me everything you know. <laughs> he took him that very night, um, that hour of the night, and washed their wounds. Immediately he was baptized, he and all of his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. His whole household was baptized because they believed. Okay, um, so here's one man who gets saved and everything in the family changed. That's up to God to do if he does it that way. But the impact of one person's faith on an entire household can be beyond words. Yeah, let's look at category number six, the attack on the household. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If God feels this way about the household, thinks this way about the household, exhorts his people from the Old Testament into the New Testament to think about the household this way, we should not be surprised to find that there would be what on the household? An attack. Chapter 3, verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Verse 2, men will be lovers of self. But that doesn't mean that they won't love stuff. They'll love money. Verse as it ends, they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will be men who are holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Verse 6. For among them are those who enter into households. So these kinds of men who are just ungodly, described in verses 2 through 4, 
they will enter into households and captivate weak women, women who are weighed down with sins and who are led on by various impulses. Evidently, there, there are women in the, in the church, in their homes, that they don't know how to address their sin or their sinful impulses with the word of God or the gospel. They weren't equipped very well to know how to deal with their sin and with their sinful desires. And these men come in and find those kinds of women in households to be perfect prey for their false teaching. Verse 7, they are always, these are women who are always learning and they are never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So they're soaking in everything a false teacher says to them. Now, you and I would, you would never come home from work and find a Jehovah's Witness sitting in front of your wife and she's just soaking it all in. You would never find that. But maybe a, maybe a Christian man comes home and his wife's been reading blogs all day or reading books all day or listening to sermons all day and it's another man and it's not true. And she's always learning, but she's not coming to the knowledge of the truth. Hmm. How about Titus chapter 1? Just about a page to the right. We're going to get to this. Holding fast the deacon, or the deacon, the elder in verse 9 needs to be a man who is holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Well, why does an elder need to be equipped with the word of God that way? Well, verse 10, he tells us, there are many rebellious men on the island of Crete. They're empty talkers and they're deceivers. They're especially those of the circumcision. They're Jewish. And they must be silenced. Why do these men need to be silenced? Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Listen, the the one thing that, here's the question that rings out in my mind when I read those two passages. It's where are the men? Where are the men in these households? Captivating weak women, upsetting whole families. What kind of man is, he's either not home or he is so ill-equipped at home that this can just happen right under his own nose. The household's best protection is a man who shepherds his heart well. And another good line of protection for the church or for the household is elders who can exhort with sound doctrine and who can refute those who contradict. Number seven. Seventh category, the household can actually become an obstacle to the gospel. Uh, This is a reality that Jesus taught. Go back to Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, verse 34. Some very sobering words. We need to add this to what we're thinking about the household because obviously what we're trying to do is we're trying to lift up as high as we can the household of God, and we're using God's word to lift it up high, but what we shouldn't do in our minds is lift it higher than God's word lifts it. And what Jesus does here in in some of these passages is he tells us it goes this high and it goes no more. Because watch, Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. For I came to set a man against his father... And a daughter against his, her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. You can't love your father or mother more than me and be worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So what is he saying? As high as the family relationship is, 
there is something that you must love more than your family relationships. God. Right? You must love the Lord above all that. The gospel of Jesus oftentimes will invade one life within a household, and then what happens next in that household is so important. That saved individual is living around a bunch of unbelievers in that household, and that individual who's been saved is called to bring the gospel to the rest of those in the household. And one of two things might happen. A glorious thing can happen like Cornelius and like like the Philippian jailer, right? The whole household believes. It can be an amazing thing. But what does Jesus also say might happen? You will share the gospel and they will not want it at all. And Jesus says, that's because I came with a sword to separate you away from these so that you'd be mine. I can remember when um, I got saved at 19 and um, my parents had divorced uh, when I was 17 and I was living with my mom. My sister had gone off to school. She was a year older than me. And so I lived with my mom for about this year and a half period of time and we were very close because um, I was kind of this thrust in this position where I had to now like be the guy, be, be the man. <clears throat> And I wasn't prepared to do that. And my mom and I just kind of, we just kind of clung to each other. Unbelievers, both of us. And God saved me in February of 1985. And on a Saturday night, and I can remember on Sunday morning thinking, I can't wait to tell my mom. And so I um, got up and I told her, I sat her down on the couch and I said, you're you're never going to guess what happened to me last night. And she said, what? And I said, "Um, I became a Christian. And I began to share the gospel with her about that what Jesus came to do and to, um, to die on the cross for forgiveness of sin. And if, and if you believe in him, you, you go to heaven. And if you don't, you go to hell. And my mom, and I, all, I, all I thought was, we, we were like this. And so all I could think of was, she's going to believe too. Why wouldn't she? I mean, we're like this. And the minute I said that to her and shared that with her, she said, oh, Scott, you don't need to believe that. God doesn't send anybody. And I was like, that's not what the Bible says. And I can remember that um, I started reading my Bible voraciously. I just had this appetite to read the Gospels. And I was that, later that week, I was reading, and we were having all this conflict, and I couldn't figure out what this was going on. And I remember reading this, and I just was like, oh my goodness, God, this is what you've done. And um, it wasn't until about maybe a year ago or so that I think God has saved my mom. Mm-hmm. And she's the only other one that I know in my family that's, that's a believer. But, you know, the household can become an obstacle and the household can become a really glorious place that the gospel does a powerful work in, that God does a great work in through the gospel. Um, but you can never lift your household above a place that, that scripture doesn't give it. Um, there will be times where you will have to um, do what's right rather than make somebody happy in your home. That's hard. doesn't matter if it's your wife. doesn't matter if it's your kids. Um, but you've got to swallow that one hard and do what's right and not honor. Remember, remember how it was spoken of negatively with Eli's family. Why do you honor your sons above me? You can't honor your wife. You can't honor your children above you can't honor your parents guys you can't try to please your parents um, uh, 
uh, more than honoring the Lord. Um, so it, it can become an obstacle to the gospel. Let's I'll encourage you to take a look at um, the Mark 3 passage. That's Jesus dealing with his own family, his own um, half-brothers and sisters, and his mother Mary. That would be a good one for you to read and watch what he does and how he views his household on earth. Number eight, leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel. How about Ephesians 5? Quickly here as we finish. Ephesians 5. <coughs> you know this teaching for the, for the men, right? For the husbands, verse 25 of Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives. And we say, okay, what do you mean by that? In, in what manner should I love my wife? In this sense, as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her. Was that costly for him? It cost him his life. He laid down his life, literally, for the church. And it is that way. So if I want to know how to love my wife, that means I need to be a man who grasps the gospel. So, number eight, leading a wife requires a strong grasp on the gospel and on the church. So, if you want to learn how to love a wife, your wife, um, uh, the way that you're supposed to, you need to understand what Jesus' self-emptying love is at the cross. You need to be a gospel-loving man. Because as you learn and love the gospel, it will inform you how to love your wife. But now watch in verse 28. Husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he's trying to, what Paul does is he gets distracted with the church as he's trying to teach about a husband-wife relationship. But it's, it's his illustration. So husband, do you want to learn how to love your wife? Well, look at Jesus. How did he love the church? Husband, you're supposed to be one flesh with your wife. Uh, look, at the, look at Jesus and his body. You can't separate Jesus from his body on earth. So the unity that Jesus has as the head of the church and with his body is what your marriage is supposed to be, a oneness of flesh that way. So if you want to be able to love your wife well, you not only have to have a grasp on the gospel, but you need to understand what the local church is. You need to understand Jesus' relationship to the church. The more you understand that in his unity with the church, the more informed you will be able to be about how to be one flesh with your wife. So if you're going to be... a a man, a godly man in your household, you need to have a strong grasp on the gospel and on the church. And lastly, let me give you an example, a New Testament example. Uh, this is Priscilla or Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila, depending on which passage you're in. Go back to Acts chapter 18. Paul's on his second missionary journey. He's in Corinth and he found a Jew. Acts chapter 18, verse 2. He found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And so he came to them. And Paul uh, did this because uh, Paul was of the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila. He stayed with them and they were working for the, their trade. By trade, they were tent makers. Um, go over uh, to chapter 18, verse 24. 
They're over in um, Ephesus, and a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, in this sense of being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So he only knew the things about Jesus that went all the way back to the very beginning of the baptism of John. He didn't know much more beyond that. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. And Priscilla and Aquila heard him. And they're like, oh my goodness, this guy's only going this far. He needs to keep going. There's so much more about Jesus that he needs to get. And so what they do, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So here's this husband and wife team of believers, <laughs> believing the husband and wife, and they're, they're involved in helping the gospel be strengthened in, from one place to the other. Go to Romans chapter 16. Next book to the right. We'll finish out with Romans 16. Verse 3, Paul, as he writes them, by this time now, um, Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome, and he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. So they had had impact, uh, great impact among many believers. And he says in verse 5, Also greet the church that is in their house. So they use their own home as a place for believers. So uh, to meet and gather. So understand this. Um, their relationship as a husband and a wife was of such that it was a good place for the church to come into. Can you That would be a good goal for your own marriage. That your marriage with your wife would be of such a, a nature and of a, of a quality that it would be a good thing for the church to meet in your house. Right? Um, by the way, think about this. Joseph and Mary, the man, the woman, right? Zacharias and Elizabeth, those are John the Baptist's parents. Ananias and Sapphira, bad example, but the husband and the wife, right? But almost in every New Testament account, it's Priscilla and Aquila. It's the wife first that Paul remembers the most. And it's probably because she had some quality about her that just stood out. She was just a godly woman. So what, what, what should we conclude from these nine different categories? Um, negatively this. To ignore household relationships, to neglect household relationships, to be indifferent to household relationships, would be, would, would, that would stand out in stark contrast to the way that God thinks about a household. A Christian man just simply cannot neglect his household relationship. He just can't. And then think that he's in alignment with God's word. He would be completely unaligned with God's word. Or to put it positively, with a heart that is shepherded to God in his word, um, that man needs to step lovingly and boldly into his household relationships with the word of God to care for those relationships that are in his household. That's what he must do positively. So that's what we're doing today, is we're making the case for the second discipline from the Word of God. Um, and as you are stepping into uh, your household well with the Word of God, caring for people there, that, that's evidence that you've seen God's heart in Scripture for household relationships. So, there it is, guys. Um, gave you a whole lot. That's like a fire hose worth to try to swallow and drink. Let's pray. We'll wrap things up. And then you guys can soak in this some more on your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your heart, for um, the household relationship arena. Pray, God, that um, we would align our thinking 
with yours and that we would be men as concerned for our household relationships. Pray, Lord, that these men would grow in their faith so that they would be able to be protectors of their homes and keep false doctrine out. And that um, the, the little ones under their care and their wives would flourish under the spiritual shade of their dad and husband. Lord, make us into the men that we must be. Lord, if, if we are left to ourselves to become th- these kinds of men, we, we, we will fail. And so we cast ourselves on your grace and we cast ourselves on your word and we, we plead with you to make us into the men that we must be. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.